And would you please join with me in prayer? Father, again, um, knowing that you are a God who delights to give us good things, to speak to us, to heal us, we ask for that now, and that in whatever way we need to hear this word, that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear it, and that you would help me uh, to be faithful to your word, that together we would see Jesus and be able to follow him more faithfully. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, um, there's a book that some of the staff is reading right now that argues that when a people are pursuing comfort and safety above everything else, they stop growing. This is a book called A Failure of Nerve by Edwin Friedman, and he argues that when you have people who have a high level of anxiety where there's a lot of stress, they tend to move towards safety and predictability and certainty. And if you think about it, that kind of describes right now, doesn't it? That, that right now, think about, think about all the different ways that you see our culture looking for safety. Um, think of how kids, everything seems to be about, like, you need to have, like, this, like, bulletproof armored car seat for your kids now. Like, there's a lot of safety for our children. Or think about all of the money that's spent in self-care. Or, or think even about how our art is safe, the number of reboots and sequels, because we know that that's safe and predictable and that's what we want. We are, right now, because of a high level of anxiety, seeking comfort and safety. But here's the problem. Friedman argues that as long as we are focusing on that, we cannot truly live. We cannot truly grow and change, which is really what life is about. I mean, think about the moments in our country where we have most grown. Think of, for example, of the, the abolition of slavery, the risk, the challenge, the uncertainty that was involved when that began, and then the Civil War that took place after that. Or think of when we landed a man on the moon and the risk and the uncertainty, and there was growth that took place. Or we can think perhaps at a more personal level. Think of a young child the first time they are learning to ride a bike and the parent lets go. Or think of what it was like as a teenager to ask someone out for the first time. There was risk. Even now, if we're wanting to grow, think of, think of the, the challenge, the danger of asking someone, could you please give me honest feedback about how I'm doing. It's scary. It's uncertain, and yet that is the way that we grow. Life involves risk. Friedman argues, and I think he's right, that the only way to truly live is a way that embraces a certain kind of adventure. Now, I think that this is something that we often miss in the way we think of Christianity. I think sometimes we can misunderstand Christianity to be kind of almost a, a kind of car seat for life, or maybe, maybe a force field of protection that as we're wanting comfort and security, we find that in Christianity so that we can kind of live the life that we're wanting, to live a life of, of working hard, enjoying life well, and know that we are okay because we have God as our protector. We see that the Christian faith being about certainty and comfort and security. And that isn't it. 
what our passage is, is meaning to tell us, I believe, what I think Jesus wants us to see in this passage is that following him actually involves being moved from comfort to uncertainty, to a feeling of unpredictability that, that truly following Jesus is to experience in some ways a life of adventure, which in one sense feels unsafe, but in reality is the only true safe place and the only true way to live. So we pick up in our passage um, right where we left off last week. If you were here with us last week, you might remember that Jesus, after healing his, uh, Peter's mother-in-law later on in that day, uh, was, uh, there's a crowd of people going, and he was healing pretty much everyone. I mean, he was literally everyone who came with a need. He was healing them. And then we're told at verse 18 that was just read, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. It's, it's kind of like at a certain point, he lifts his head up and he realizes that there are people not just wanting to be healed, but now there's a lot of people who just want to watch and see what's happening. And you would think that that's a good thing. Look, he's gathering a crowd, he's excited about it, but he says, we need to get in a boat and go to the other side of the lake. And the reason is because Jesus isn't interested in being a fad. He's not interested in being a celebrity with, with superficial followers. He's interested in life change. And so he wants to invest some time in his apprentices. And so he's going to the other side. And so what this does in this moment as he is moving to leave is it creates this kind of moment of decision for the crowd that's there. Are they going to just be a crowd and when he leaves just kind of go back to their homes? Or, or will they take the next step and decide to be one of Jesus' followers, one of his apprentices? So in this moment where Jesus is about to leave, you see some kind of deliberation. You see some people wanting to make some decisions. And, and the first one we see is right after we read verse 18. It says, a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. A scribe, a religious leader. This seems like a really good thing. And you would think that Jesus would be like, great, come on. But but it's interesting that actually Jesus doesn't seem to be very encouraging. What does he say in response? He says, foxes have holes and birds of this air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You need to understand if you're going to come with me. Even animals have places for home, but I don't. Every night I might be sleeping in a different place. My life is unpredictable. It is not comfortable and if you are going to follow me, you need to understand that your life will not be predictable or comfortable either. See, here it is. Here is what we were saying at the outset, that, that Jesus, and it's not just you talking to them. This is something that's included for us to understand, that if you want to follow Jesus, you need to realize it is not a life of comfort that Jesus is inviting you to. It is a life of unpredictability. It is a life at times that will feel even scary. That's what Jesus is telling this would-be follower. You need to know what you're getting into. And if we want any evidence of this, we need to just jump forward a little bit to see what happens about a half an hour later. If you jump forward to verse 23, where after having had these interactions... Jesus gets into a boat. And it's interesting to me the way that Matthew even tells us what happened. It says, And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. 
In other words, Matthew wants us to understand, I am now telling you a story of what happens to those people who follow Jesus. So they get into a boat, and as we, if we're trying to imagine it, the boat would be about 25 feet long. So that's probably from here to the Oregon over there, about eight feet wide. There's no sails. There's just four oar locks on either side. And so you can imagine four disciples who are, many of them are, you know, fishermen. They know what they're doing, starting to row. Jesus kind of points to the other side of the sea, about five miles away. He says, that's where we're going. It's a two-hour boat ride, probably. And then Jesus, who is understandably exhausted, goes to the very back of the boat and he finds a spot where he can just kind of lie down. Meanwhile, you can imagine the disciples rowing and it's this kind of quiet thing. It's evening, the sun has uh, set. There is still warmth coming up from the water, but cool air coming from Mount Hermon not far away. And you're hearing this, the quiet sound of the oars just hitting the water and maybe this quiet conversation of the disciples kind of debriefing after a long day. And then a storm comes. And, and storm is actually an understatement. This is like a hurricane that comes out of nowhere. The, the quiet breeze suddenly becomes these gusts of wind that kind of blow you back. The, the water, which was calm before, becomes like mountains that are lifting the boat up and down. In a matter of moments, it goes from calm to chaos. And these disciples, who you remember, know what they're doing. They have grown up on the Sea of Galilee. Even they don't know how they can do this. They are terrified. The, the water starts coming into the boat. The boat gets lower and lower. It's tossed more and more. And they are just white-knuckle terror. And at that moment where they think that it is all over for them, they finally cry out to Jesus and saying, Lord, save us which is the right thing for them to do. It was right, I think, for them to wake Jesus up. When, whenever we are feeling overwhelmed, there's, it's never a wrong thing to call out to Jesus. But notice they don't just say, Lord, save us. They say, Lord, save us. We are perishing. In other words, for them, it's not just a matter of following Jesus being scary and a little at times unpredictable, right now it feels like following Jesus is a mistake. Now just think about this for a moment. The only reason they are experiencing any of this is because they've decided to follow Jesus. If they had stayed with the crowd, where would they be right now? They would be in their homes, quietly in their bed, enjoying just kind of the quiet sound of rain, thinking, boy, I'm glad I'm not out in the water right now. But instead, they are certain they are going to die. They are convinced that in this moment, their choice to put their lot in with Jesus was a mistake. And then unless something happens and they don't know what, it is certain death for them. We are perishing, they said to Jesus. And, and so you can imagine in that moment, so Jesus is lying down and he kind of groggily wakes up. And somehow he hasn't noticed before, but now he's looking and recognizing that the waves are tossing him up and down. But instead of panicking, he just looks at them and he says, why are you panicking? That's, that's the actual word. The word it says, why are you afraid? It's not fear that this word is representing. That's a different word. This one's more intense than that. Fear is a natural physical response. It is right when you are being tossed up and down to feel some kind of fear. The question is, what do you do with that fear? And that's 
That's what Jesus is rebuking his disciples for because they have moved from that fear to conclude that they are done for, that they have no hope. They believe they are perishing. And so he says, why are you panicking, O you of little faith? And after saying that, he, he stands up, which I'm not sure exactly how he did with the boat being moved, but he stands up and he says words that probably could barely be heard over the sound of the storm, something along the lines of, quiet down now. And in a moment, suddenly the lake is like glass, the wind is gone, and there is no more sound. And in that moment, the disciples are no longer afraid of the storm. There is no more storm. They, they now have a different kind of fear as they're looking at the person standing in the boat, someone they thought they knew but realize now they don't know him, not like they thought they did. And they ask the question, what kind of a person is this? What kind of a person is this? is this that even the wind and the waves obey his word? Can you imagine what that would have felt like in that moment? They, I think they would have recognized probably simultaneously two almost paradoxical truths. On one hand, they would have been trembling in fear. If you've read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know that, that C.S. Lewis chooses this lion, Aslan, to kind of depict Jesus. And I love that because one of the things that's true is I can't ever imagine being side by side with a lion without being a little afraid. Even if you know that lion is never going to hurt you, he is just so powerful. And they are in the presence of someone who can just speak and, and cause a hurricane to end. And they realize that following Jesus is not going to be a life of predictability and ease and comfort because he is so much bigger and mysterious than they can imagine. And yet at the same time, in that moment, there would have been an awareness, I think, that as scary as this might be, there is no safer place than to be with this man. This man who is committed to caring for them. This man who can, who can command even the storm. And that, in a nutshell, is the adventure that we're talking about, the, the scariness, the uncertainty, and yet, in reality, to be with Jesus is the safest place possible. Well, that's not the only interaction, if we back up to when Jesus was about to leave, that's not the only interaction that Jesus has with these would-be followers. There is another person that Jesus interacts with. This person says, Lord, before, you know, I know you want me to go, but but let me first bury my father. Now, commentators will say it's not likely that he's talking about his father having just died, needing to be buried. If that were the case, he would be sitting in vigil somewhere else. But this seems to be an idiom of the time where it's saying, I have a father who's growing old, and I have responsibilities towards him. Let me continue the family business. Let me make sure I'm taking care for him. And then when he dies and I bury him, then I will be ready to follow you. But I don't want to disappoint my family right now, so let me just come later. And to that, Jesus is unyielding. He says, follow me. In other words, Jesus is saying, um, 
Yes, I know that my call to you is an interruption. My call to you is a kind of upheaval. Following Jesus is not something we can schedule in our appointment book every other Tuesday for an hour. It's not something that just kind of slides into our pre-existing schedule. It's something that demands everything change. And it will sometimes demand that things that were important to us we have to leave behind because we're choosing something better in following Jesus. That's, that's why he is saying to someone who's saying, I've got this life that I need to stick with. Jesus says, nope, you've got to follow me. And then he says, let the dead bury their own dead, which seems really harsh, right? Let those dead people bury him when he dies. But it's actually an exhortation of love. What Jesus is saying is, you have a crossroads before you right now. You can choose to go back, and you need to understand that that way is the pathway to death. Or you can choose to follow me, and you will discover that in me is the way of life. So if we continue um, with where we were before, after Jesus has calmed the storm, he and his disciples row to shore. And there's two things you need to know about where they land ashore on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. First, it stinks. I, I'm just deducing that Matthew doesn't say, verse 27, it stank. It's just that it tells us that there was a large group of pigs nearby. In fact, if you look at Gospel of Mark, where he describes the same account, he says it was 2,000 pigs. Which, And I looked at the commentators, and they tell me that's a lot. And so I'm trying to imagine what 2,000 pigs would be like. So we've got about, what, what, 80 pews here. So if you can imagine like three pigs per pew, then imagine four more of these church sanctuaries, and that's one half of it. So I guess eight churches of pews of pigs, and pew seems to be the right description. It would have stunk. And so, so that's one thing to know, that this, there's this, this football field of pigs over there. And the other thing you need to know is that this area that Jesus landed in was an area that no one wanted to walk through. Not because of the stench, but because there were two terrifying men that people avoided at all cost. Two men whose lives, in, in a real sense, were a living death. We're told that they were demon-possessed, which I, I can't imagine what it's like to, to have no longer have any ability to act freely to no longer have the ability to, to see and to think clearly, to no longer have the ability to love. It was a kind of, of living death. And, and not only that, but, but death seems to be what they're all about. And it says no one is willing to go by that way because they are so fierce. In other words, they are destructive. If someone comes near, they will attack and maybe brutally kill whoever is near. And, and what's more, where do they like to hang out? They just like to hang out in the tombs because they want to be with the dead. Because that's what their life is all about right now. But when Jesus and his disciples step onto the shore, these two men whose lives are a living death come out to him, knowing that he has entered their territory. And, and this terrifying, naked, long hair, I mean, like just completely crazy looking men come, and what do they do? They are terrified terrified when they see Jesus, and they say, Jesus, why have you come? Have you come here to torment us? And it says, and they begged him. They begged him, please, if you're going to send us out of these two men, send us into these pigs. 
And Jesus, he says just one word. He just says, go. And suddenly these two men, I don't know if they fall down, but whatever happened to them, they're no longer crazed. And suddenly there was this football field of pigs over on the hill suddenly just start moving. There's so much destructive power in these demons that they charge all the way down into the water. Can you imagine 2,000 pigs just lap after lap, just filling an area of the Sea of Galilee? It would have been disturbing. And I have so many questions about this passage here. I mean, I have no idea what's going on with the pigs, really. I don't know exactly the point of this, apart from the fact that it would have been really dramatic. And honestly, I'm not sure why it seems like Jesus decides to have mercy on the demons. But I think Matthew wisely draws our attention to the important part that we're supposed to understand, because Matthew then tells us in the story that the two pig herders, I think that's their name, they, they go back into town and they... They tell the town what happened. And notice it says, they told especially what happens to the two men. I think Matthew's testily saying, don't get distracted by the pigs. Notice what happened to those two men. And what happened to those two men? Those two men were once living dead. But at a single word, they are made sane. They are made able to act. They are made alive by Jesus. And, and when the crowd comes out, they would have seen these two men who they were terrified by in their right minds, looking normal. Families who have been parted from these men would suddenly have their family members back. And not only that, but now they knew it would be safe once again to walk in this area. And yet, as they see this life that has been restored from death, what does the crowd do? It says, they begged him. Does that sound familiar? They're doing the very same thing that the demons did. Just like the demons, they are begging Jesus to leave. They're essentially saying, we kind of wish you, we, we do wish you hadn't come here. We, we kind of wanted things just the way they were rather than what you're doing. Could you please leave us? Why? I mentioned uh, this book by Friedman at the beginning, um, and uh, he argues that the thing that stands in the way of people moving to grow and to change is not that their lives are really great now and so they don't want to change their lives. The problem is that their lives are just mediocre enough, just tolerable enough that it seems to be too hard to do the scary things that are involving change. You, you see this actually uh, not that infrequently in marriages, that, that a couple over time has learned that certain conversations or certain things are really painful to talk about it, and so they keep on avoiding it. It's like they keep on packing up a closet that no one is allowed into of things that they can't talk about, and over time, their relationship is tolerable. They've figured out a way to be peaceful with each other, but it's dying a slow death because there is no intimacy. There is no growth. It is the tolerability in and of itself that keeps them from being willing to open that closet and deal with things and grow. And, and that, I think, is what is true of this town. This town 
sees the kind of change that Jesus has brought, and they understand that when he comes, he brings an upheaval. He brings a kind of earthquake to, to welcome him in. Yes, it might bring life, and that probably is better, but it would also mean all sorts of change, and they might have to let go of things, and they're just frankly not ready for that. Jesus is terrifying to them. And so they would rather be in that group of the dead burying their own dead than to allow this powerful, good figure to change them and give them life. Do you see what, what Jesus is showing us in these two moments, this moment of where disciples who follow Jesus, experience a storm where it looks like Jesus is asleep and they're going to die. You see this moment where Jesus comes and he brings life and people are so terrified by the change that he brings that they would rather send him away. Jesus has already told us what he's doing. He tells us, look, if you're going to follow me, it's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be predictable. And yet we know, as Jesus showed when he spoke to the wind and the waves, that in him is a safety that is unlike any other. When Jesus says to the second person, he says, yes, your life is going to change, and there's going to be things that you will leave, and there will be people that you disappoint, and there's something about this that is scary. But if we recognize what happened to these two men, we realize that the life that Jesus calls us to, as scary as the change might be, is the life in where true life is found. The life of following Jesus is the kind of adventure that we were made for. So, how, how does this map into our own lives? So, there's these two stories that seem so exotic. What does this look like for us? Well, I'm going to kind of move from the sublime to the ridiculous with an, ex an illustration from my own life that's kind of embarrassing, but hopefully gives us a sense of kind of the things that I, I mean. So, um, Nick, I think, uh, Nick Owens, a couple of weeks ago, mentioned the fact that there's this beta group of about half a dozen people that together with Nick, are trying to kind of take some steps in evangelism, and they're, they're actually inviting friends, neighbors, people they know to have kind of an hour-long conversation with them where they're learning about their spiritual beliefs. And at the end of it, there's even this, this request, hey, would you like to study the Bible with me? And, and it's going, like, really well. There's these really cool stories, which I have to say, on one hand, is awesome and exciting, and on the other hand, is kind of terrifying because a beta group implies that other people need to do it as well, which probably means I'm going to be needing to do that, and I feel daunted by that. And just to kind of give you a sense of, of, of how cowardly I can be, um, so about a week ago, uh, it was Saturday evening, and we have a, a cool kind of group of neighbors. I'm on this text link, you know, like in about six or seven of us will sometimes like be trading jokes or asking how things are going. And at one point, um, last Saturday, one, one of my neighbors said, it was around 6.30, you know, it was dark, and he said, hey, I'm grilling outside, having some scotch, anyone want to join me? Which is super friendly, right? Like, super hospitable. And yet, I have to say, in that moment, I was, I was in an introvert moment. And I was looking forward to just reading a book, and I was feeling, honestly, kind of shy about things, because, you know, like, who knows, sometimes conversations go well, sometimes they don't. And, and, and so I was like, ah, I don't think so. And then I kind of remembered, oh, yeah, there's this beta group. 
Um, and I even remembered actually that uh, elders, uh, you know, when we meet recently, we were talking together about different steps that we're taking to try to reach the world around us and, and, and realizing, hey, I can't really love my neighborhood if I'm not actually trying to be present to them. And so I, I could almost feel Jesus saying, you know where you're supposed to go right now. And so Jennifer can tell you, she like saw like, you know, it was like shoulder angel, shoulder devil, me kind of like doing this. And finally at a certain moment, I'm like, okay, I put on my jacket, I texted, yeah, I'm game. And, and I would love to have like this great story where I talked about like, you know, like, and our whole neighborhood had revival. But of course that's not what it was. It was, it was me really enjoying hanging out with two other guys and, and getting to know them and, and connecting with them. And, and yet at the same time as small, I mean, it is so small, isn't it? As that is, I, I actually think that is part of what it looks like for me to be stepping out and recognizing that Jesus is calling me out of my comfort zone and be willing to embrace the adventure that Jesus calls me to. And th that might seem like a long reach from you know, the winds and the waves and the swine and the water to something as small as this. But I want to suggest that for us, I think that's probably where this adventure is taking us. That when Jesus is calling us out of our comfort zone, and he is, we, we need to be ready for little interruptions that pull us out of our predictability and we realize, I have an opportunity to connect with someone, and that's good. To realize that sometimes Jesus is moving from a, us from our comfort zone where we know what we're doing to maybe doing something of serving others that feels a little bit hard, like, like bringing food to the homeless in Downers Grove. To be open and ready when Jesus is leading us to do something where we feel weak and uncertain and maybe even scared, such as talking to someone and inviting them to have a conversation with us about Jesus. These things, for me, when I think about them honestly, I, I find myself feeling uncomfortable at times about some of this. And I want to suggest that is a sign that that's probably where we are called to go. Because Jesus is not someone who invites us to predictability and to comfort and to a sense of just security. He invites us to something where there is risk, where, where there is this sense of uncertainty about things, where there is mystery. And yet, because it is Jesus, he is always inviting us to something that is ultimately safe and is ultimately life. So I want to invite us to just take a moment in our hearts to respond to God and, and maybe even quietly listen to see if there are ways that God has been calling us, that Jesus has been calling us to follow him in ways that might feel unsafe. And where we have resisted, I invite you to spend some time in confession, um, to join me as I also acknowledge those things. And then uh, I will lead us in prayer in a minute's time. Would you please pray silently with me?